we have built technology that makes more money the more divisive it is. And if we want the tech to make more money, we can just ramp up the divisiveness. That's not an intentional thing. That's like an accidental byproduct of how mm. the technology works. And so this anxiety that we're feeling as a culture, in my mind, that's not some accidental thing. That is that is the byproduct of how we have programmed humanity mm -hmm. through this technology. Yeah. Silicon Valley isn't programming software. They're programming society. Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Documentary filmmaker Jeff Orlowski's on the show today. I met Jeff at Sundance last year at the premiere of a movie called Fighting With My Family, starring Florence Pugh, The Rock, and Vince Vaughn. As Jeff and I waited for the film to start, we got to talking about his filmography, which includes the documentary Chasing Ice, for which he won an Emmy, followed up with Chasing Coral. Chasing Ice and Chasing Coral are environmental documentaries that are at once deeply compelling and existentially terrifying, yet leaving us with a sense of hope that we can still make a difference when it comes to global warming. Shortly after Sundance last year, I started my podcast, and one of my first pitches to potential guests was to Jeff. But every time I reached out to his team, he was on location and not available. So when Sundance came around again this last January, and I saw that Jeff would be premiering a documentary called The Social Dilemma, I reached out to his people again, and the stars aligned. I was able to interview Jeff in Park City after seeing his film, and it was a great talk. Like Chasing Ice and Chasing Coral, his film The Social Dilemma takes on a tough, existentially important issue. But instead of the environmental crisis of global warming, Jeff takes on a crisis happening in technology. In The Social Dilemma, the issue is the perils of social media platforms like Facebook and Google, which are driving up suicide rates in young people, changing and shaping our relationships, our elections, and ultimately, our culture. After watching The Social Dilemma, I think you'll want to show this film to your family and friends. It's a jarring film with a jarring message. But as with Jeff's prior films, you're left with a sense of hope that we can do something about it. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy my chat with Jeff Orlowski. Jeff Orlowski, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks for making time for me. Yeah, perfect. I know you're super busy here at Sundance. Um, I don't know if you remember, but I, I met you last year when I sat next to your right, girlfriend yes. at the uh, Fighting With My Family premiere. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's right. Oh, that, I, oh my goodness, that was a fun screening too. That was a fun yeah. screening. Mm -hmm. I think Vince Vaughn and The Rock were right next to us. Yeah. And, <laughs> it uh, was wild. It was just amazing also to see uh, when they were in the theater, like, all eyes were on them. It was like you couldn't avoid looking at them. It was just like a whole magnet of attention in the entire room. Yeah, that was a lot of fun yeah. to see uh, to see them watching the movie with mm -hmm. us. Um, but I remember I was just starting my podcast at the time and I kind of dropped the idea of maybe talking to you at right, some point. Right. And then I later on had emailed your, your people and you were gone on location, I think. Yeah. I think that's probably just the nature of your profession. You're on location shooting yeah. and... I find it, um, life tends to go through these cycles now as a filmmaker. I've, I've recognized there's a production, then post-production, then release schedule cycle. Yeah. So when we're shooting, I don't know where I'm going to be. We're just out somewhere, gone for weeks or months um, on location. When that kind of wraps up, 
I'm back home for an extended period of time. And it's like the only time that I actually get home. I can like tend to my house and yeah. hang out with friends. Uh, and that's when we're editing and just every day in the editing room. Um, and then when we release a film back out on the road again. So it was this interesting sort of cycle that's been happening. In home is Boulder? Boulder, yeah. Yeah. How long have you been there? I've been there since uh, 2007. So okay. whatever that is. Um, it's been, uh, I went there to work with James Baylog, who is the subject of Chasing Ice, my oh, first that's film. right. Yeah. Um, he lived there and we started hanging out in Colorado more and I just sort of fell in love with the place and never left. Yeah. Beautiful area. So, but you grew up in, in Staten Island? Yeah. I grew up in New York. Uh, yeah. So from the East Coast, my family's still out there. My whole family is on Staten Island. Um, my sister just had twins. They're out there. My parents, my grandmother. All in, all in New York. And you're, the, the high school that you went to, and I forget the name of it, but um, it, it seems like a pretty prestigious yeah, Stuy- high school. Stuyvesant High School. It's, yeah. a, it's one of those magnet schools. Yeah. So, yeah, you have to like take a test to get in. Arts oriented. Uh, math and science oriented. Oh, okay. It was like the least artsy place I've been <laughs> to in a long time. Um, interestingly, I hung out with just a handful of artists in that school, but those are some people that absolutely influenced and shaped my life. There was a friend of mine, Ethan Moses, who was the most amazing photographer um, in our school. And I learned so much about, about photography from him. September 11th was actually my senior year in high school. And our high school was four blocks away from the World Trade Center. Oh, and my goodness. Uh, I was the editor-in-chief of our school newspaper. So for me, my first real like deep experience with journalism was 9-11 happening four blocks away from our building as I was running our school newspaper and as our entire staff were like trying to cover that story yeah. as a local high school. So where were you when the attacks happened? I was on the first floor in music class when the first building was hit and it felt to me like a huge truck was outside and somehow it slammed this, the you know, the gate and it, it didn't make any sense, but it was just like, that's an, a, a really weird sound that just happened. And then um, they made an announcement over the PA that something has happened. Don't worry, stay inside. And um, and then it just sort of continued from there. Interestingly, uh, a short documentary came out last year about a bunch of my friends from high school who it was sort of our 9-11 story as told retrospectively. I understand from doing some research uh, on you before we started the interview that you that something you wrote in your school newspaper actually made it into the New York Times uh, distribution. Yeah. So um, I know this was like one of my first really, really big projects, I guess, in some way. Our school newspaper, we put together a special edition for September 11th. We our our journalism class was taught in part by New York Times editors. So every Thursday editors from the New York Times came to our classroom and taught us the ethics of journalism oh and the gosh. standards and opinion versus fact and how you how you approach news. This is, you know, 2001. This is 2000, 2001. Yeah. And um, in that process, we put together a special edition for 9-11 and those editors connected us to other people at the New York Times and they agreed to distribute our magazine in the New York Times as a special insert. They were just supply us with the magazine, however much you can get, we'll distribute it for you for free throughout the New York metro area. So we found a publishing company, they gave, they donated 850 million, uh, sorry, 850,000 copies of our magazine. Wow. They printed it all for free and they were distributed um, to the whole New York City metro area. Wow. Did that make an impact on you 
um, wow. in terms of your professional direction and vocational yeah, direction? In, in so many ways. I mean, I think one of the biggest things was crazy harebrained lofty idea and huge ambitious goal that that ended up we accomplished it like we we wanted to distribute it as widely as we could and this notion that our little school newspaper could be in the new york times was absolutely remarkable and i think it was just like one of those early affirmations of you can think something up and invent it and pursue a dream and a passion and fulfill it yeah and where were you in in terms of your worldview at that point? And, mm-hmm. and you know, at age 18, some people don't really have a, yeah. a gelled worldview. But, in, you know, in terms of like environmental issues and mm-hmm. the movies that you ended up shooting, yeah. um, did you have a sense of kind of what you thought about the world at that point? That's a great question. Um, when I was a freshman in high school, so a couple of years earlier, I was given an opportunity to attend this very unique camp in upstate New York. It's a camp called Camp Rising Sun. It's it's supported by this foundation, and it's a youth leadership camp. And they bring together these young campers at age 14, 15, 16 years old from all around the world to live together from first an entire summer. And this experience as a freshman in high school, I, I now had friends from Israel and Palestine and all across Europe and Asia and India and, and all around the U.S. And this is, once again, pre like real internet, pre mobile and social, et cetera. And so in these really, really early formulative years of my life, I was given this really unprecedented global perspective of people coming together and just being friends. I mean, really just hanging out with people from other cultures. Mm-hmm. I have a, uh, uh, I have a Polish last name and um my my father's father is polish and one of the campers there um from lebanon came up to me one day we were hanging out in his tent and and i was asking questions about his religion and his prayer practice and what have you and at the end of the camp season he came up to me and he said i've never had a jewish person expressed interest in my religion and i'm not jewish <laughs> um but this shattered his thinking so much that somebody could be interested in his faith that he had a previous assumption that wasn't the case. And so I didn't correct him. I just kind of let that slide um, and just continued to like, you know, show him love. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know, I'd like to think that it made a a shift in the way he sees the world. Um, That's, you know, that's when we were 15 years old. So I wasn't uh, a huge environmentalist or activist prior to then. And I don't even think that that really changed me fully. Uh, but I think it planted those seeds. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually through that organization that I met Jane Goodall a couple of years later. And I met Jane Goodall the weekend before 9-11. And Jane was stuck in New York during 9-11. And that kind of gave birth to a friendship that I've had with her now for many, many years. And she's been an amazing mentor and guide for me. I've heard her lecture, probably, I don't know, 50 or 100 times. I've heard her talk over and over and over again. Um, just being in the same city as her when she's giving a speech and showing up and just being in the back of the room or helping her and her team out. Or uh, for a long time, I was just taking photographs of her when she was doing events and just sharing them back with her team and mm. uh, letting them, you know, the Jane Goodall Institute use a bunch of that imagery. Um, it's something where I think when you listen to somebody like that over and over and over again, it ingrains something in you um, that that changes you and changes yeah. who you are. I think there's also something really powerful about how Jane tells stories that I only realized later that I think has influenced me in another way too. I was listening to her talk one day and realized that 
She starts her story off with her own personal experience of going to Gombe in her mid-20s. She's a young girl from England, just loved animals, and she went to Gombe. And at the end of her story, you feel like you want to change the world and you want to, you're an environmentalist. And there's this huge, it's like, how did this transition, like where in her storytelling did it shift? She goes through her first person narrative. And then at some point she says, then I started to see the changes happening to this home that I loved. She, she hooks you in, you fall in love with Gombe, you fall in love with the story of her and the chimpanzees, um, her experience with them, her learning from them, and then her observation of seeing that this landscape is changing and why. Mm. And it's that little pivot that happens there. And by the end of her storytelling, you're just wrapped up in her hands, like regardless <laughs> of where you are in the political spectrum, yeah. you, you totally hear and appreciate and love what she's saying. And that's something that has been very, very meaningful and powerful to me. Anybody can listen to Jane talk, no matter where you are on the political spectrum. And I think you leave that talk believing that we need to protect the planet right. as, as she speaks to. So her storytelling kind of transcends politics Absolutely. and, you know, the, the dichotomy that we get sucked into. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it sounds like her storytelling techniques kind of rubbed off on you and influenced yeah. you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And then you made your way to Stanford somehow. Uh, tell us, tell us about that journey. Yeah, well, um, you applied to the school. I, I actually I did write about September 11th. It was soon after that that uh, that I was applying to college, and uh, I got to visit the campus, and I fell in love with it, and applied early, and got in early, and I didn't apply to any other colleges. So, not gonna, I was uh, very very lucky and fortunate. Um, but then Stanford completely changed my life yet again in a you know opening up a worldview and such brilliant, smart people from all around the world coming together uh, at college. And what, what direction were you going uh, with your education at that point? Math and science, journalism, or what was happening? I um, That's really interesting. So I was doing a bunch of tech stuff. I was working with friends on doing tech startups. Um, we were building websites for a while, which was pretty straightforward, but like building early flash websites with a couple of friends. Um, and then also after I graduated, I was working with one of my friends on doing developing like a new tech news platform like the intention was to change the way news was distributed online this is you know 2007 or so mm -hmm. um found it to be very challenging we shut the whole thing down at some point but i i took a lot of different classes from a lot of different disciplines i ended up majoring in anthropology actually mm. but um i what i actually did was i took the course bulletin and i looked at every single class in every department and i circled all the classes that i had interest in um built that into a huge spreadsheet talked to all of my friends who were upperclassmen and asked them what classes should i take and that was actually the best thing like all of the seniors <laughs> telling you as a freshman or sophomore you have to take that class yeah oh this design class you have to take that oh this management class definitely take this one classes that you would never expect to like seek out but people are saying that professor, you just need to take a class with that professor. Right. And so I feel like I was optimizing my entire college experience around the advice from the seniors and mm -hmm. the upperclassmen. Makes and, a lot of sense. Um, and then I reverse engineered into anthropology. That was the major that fit everything that I wanted to do the most um, and worked out really, really well. So I took a very diverse set of courses. Tell us about the relationship that resulted in the Chasing Ice yeah. documentary. Yeah. So... Um, that was totally unrelated to Stanford in many ways, uh, or the friends from Stanford. Um, through Jane Goodall, <laughs> I met a guy, his name's Michael, and he's a, an amazing networker and connector. And he connected me to a whole bunch of different people um, when I was in my, like, from late high school into college years. 
and connected me to a bunch of photography and, and video jobs. So it was sort of like my first entrance into that world was through his kind of affirmation and through his connections. The subject of Chasing Ice, James Balog, is a good friend of Michael's as well. And so uh, I met Jim a couple times through Michael. And it I, I don't know, for me, it just really attests to the power of mentorship and to the power of somebody willing to take a chance on, on young talent mm-hmm. um, that is hugely meaningful. Um, I, I think I'm so grateful for so many countless mentors that I've had. Uh, I really, really try to mentor as much as I can as well, also through a Sundance mentoring program um, called Sundance Ignite. But it's through that connection with Michael that I got connected to Jim. Um, Jim had a really well-known filmmaker and cinematographer joining him out in the field. And I think his response was like, why do I need this you know, young kid who's still in college to join? And Michael twisted his arm and convinced him to, to let me tag along. And then I was just you know, working my butt off, trying to be useful, try to be helpful, try to help the team on the mission. And that was senior year in college, spring break. I had a chance to go to Iceland with a Nat Geo photographer. It was the coolest freaking thing I could have oh ever gosh. imagined. So we're out there and we're ice climbing and hiking around on glaciers. I'd never done that before. And just going on an epic adventure, it, that's, it was just mind-boggling. Yeah. It was the coolest adventure I, think I ever could have imagined. time-lapse photography and that type yeah, of Yeah, we were setting up cameras. We were installing the stuff. I was helping with whatever needed to be done. I was helping to re-engineer the systems that we had designed and figure out ways to install the mount more securely. So I'm not an engineer by training. I just enjoy building stuff and was trying to help build and improvise and you know make stuff happen i remember there was one thing there was one problem that we had oh there's a huge like (laughs) um u.s metric challenge that we had all of our equipment that we brought from the u.s and then all of the stuff that we were buying in iceland a lot of it didn't fit together because (laughs) the thread sizes were different and we were just trying to improvise how how do we get connect this thing felt like that scene in uh apollo in in that movie where you're like trying to just connect yeah, I got to get this round thing in this square hole. Um, and it was just out in the middle of nowhere with limited resources trying to fit these pieces together. Yeah. Um, Problem solving. Yeah. And that's yeah. what led to, that was the very, very first trip for Chasing Ice. Nice. And then how did that turn into a documentary? Yeah. Jim very wisely knew he needed to document it. He needed to film it. And he didn't really know what the end goal or purpose was going to be necessarily, but on that first trip he brought a team a film team and pretty much every trip after that we always had a video camera and that ended up becoming my main task for quite a while was to shoot video it's sort of like a hybrid i was shooting video for him and then helping with whatever needed to be done and if something i dropped the camera to focus on other stuff so it wasn't there to only film it was kind of a split a split objective but then we ended up having a huge amount of footage all this footage and just kept shooting kept shooting kept go to Alaska, film some more, go to Greenland, go back to Iceland. We kept filming everything that was happening. He's just trying to get these cameras to work and make sure they work despite the disappointments and the setbacks. Yeah. And, yeah. and so at the time, it, it doesn't sound like you had a grand plan or, or Jim had a grand plan that, all right, this is our documentary and this is our budget. You're Not just all. filming impromptu. Yeah. Yep. And all of a sudden this turns into an Emmy. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> how does that happen? All of a sudden that was like five years later. <laughs> um, he had the budget to go out and do the project and to install the cameras. And he had amazing um, connections at Nat Geo and other, other philanthropists who saw the meaning and value of his work, what it meant for capturing a story of climate change, 
that the story was there in the glaciers. We just kept traveling and kept filming. And it was probably a year and a year or a year and a half into it. I was, I, I kept saying, we got to make a movie, got to make a movie. And we didn't have the funding. I didn't have the experience. I had done shorts. I did short films in college, oh, okay. um, narratives and documentaries. Um, and so that was just for fun. I was taking, you know, film workshops and learning that craft with my friends. But I was still like 23 or something. And yeah. he didn't have the faith for quite a long time. And I kept twisting his arms like, we need to do this. We need to do it. And um, ultimately, cutting the story short, um, I ended up cutting a trailer uh, one weekend and um, showed it to him and his wife and his assistant. And I'm like, this is what I want to make. And I think the trailer was effective enough that it won them over. Yeah. And um, we were able to figure out how to make it work. I was basically going to then treat it as a pr my production. I'll, I'll take on the responsibility. I'll take on the fundraising, the work that I was doing for him. I was doing a lot of editing for him and time lapses, right. uh, time lapse editing. Um, I told him, you know, I'll find somebody else to do this work. I'll train them. You won't ever have to like worry about it. I'll be your point. It was really thinking from his perspective, what were his needs and how could I address his needs while at the same time, starting to make this movie. Hmm. So were you officially the director and producer at that point? Uh, at that point, um, I, I guess kind of, it was sort of just a <laughs> ramshackle. <laughs> okay. You can move ahead with this and we'll figure out how to make it all work. Yeah. Then I started building a team and brought yeah. two other producers on board who had far more experience and knowledge than I had. I learned so much from Paula and from Jerry on that project. Well, I think some of the best work that's out there is a result of a very organic process as opposed to this idea that results in bringing in like corporations to fund, right. you know, fund the project. And then you all of a sudden you're losing control. Uh, but I don't know that you can have a more organic uh, beginning to a documentary than chasing ice. Yeah. I think it was like the epitome of independent figuring it out as you go along. Yeah. I remember the very first time we were trying to fundraise and it was so difficult and Jim had some friends and we, we did a presentation and I was struggling to make it all happen. And I remember exactly where I was. I was walking up the stairs of my house. I got to the top landing. I was just checking my email on my phone or something. And I um, saw this email come in. We're going to give you a grant for $25,000. Mm. Um, Sean Byers, and she and her husband were so f supportive. And at the time, it was like the biggest amount of money I ever could have imagined. <laughs> and it was absolute make or break. We were able to use that to hire Mark Monroe to come on board as a writer to help me structure things. I was editing mostly by my, completely by myself at that point in time, yeah. just going through all the footage and just trying to figure out how do I edit a scene together? How do I craft this whole story together? We then brought a friend of mine, Danny Goldhaber, on. Um, as an assistant and he was editing a lot of footage he later has gone on to he made a film called cam uh, that's a netflix original um, a narrative film and so it was really really small and totally indie and i remember that that feeling and that emotion of the very first outside person saying we believe in you and here's some money hmm. and go for it yeah and i don't think that ever gets old like that that notion that there's somebody who just wants you to go and, and do your craft and tell your story and make something and go contribute something. Yeah. And, and, and relative to the budgets that are required to put together big projects, that's relatively oh, small sum of was, money. Yeah. Now it's, but, 
now yeah $25,000 feels very different now than it did back then yeah um but, but it, it depends on the project right yeah I mean you True. can have you could be doing your first short and the budget could be lower than that um or you could have a really crazy concept for a feature that's way way higher but I think you know it's all certainly it's all relative but that that first money was so so meaningful to yeah. us as you may have noticed there are great resources and advice mentioned in all our episodes. And for many of them, we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place, our newsletter. You can go to dreampathpod.com newsletter to join. It's not fancy, just an email about each week's episode, featured artists, and resources to help you on your journey. Thanks. And now back to the interview. Did you start working on Chasing Coral before you won the Emmy? No. Oh, well, hmm. Uh, before the Emmy, we got chasing ice out into the world and we put so much time and effort into the distribution of that film. Um, we really just believe that it needed to be seen as broadly and as widely as possible. And it actually is very, very difficult. We were here at, Sun at Sundance. We had a couple offers to buy the film. We didn't really like the whole package and we ended up having to carve all the rights out and split it up and do a lot of different means of distribution. And this was 2012 and pre-real pre streaming days yeah exactly yeah. Uh, we we ended up getting a deal with netflix at the time but it wasn't like the deals today it wasn't an original deal um it was before netflix originals existed mm -hmm. um but we got to stream on netflix and we got to go to television on at geo and then we worked with uh, our partners at submarine submarine deluxe and we basically did independent distribution in the theaters with submarine and our whole team we built a whole team of people to try to help promote submarine did all the bookings and we busted our butts to get the film out in as many movie theaters as possible and that was once again true independent figure it out as we go along how do we get people to see this film as widely as possible and we really wanted people to see it on the big screen i mean that's a movie where when you see it on the big screen it's the closest you can get to feeling the scale and size of the glaciers. Yeah. These glaciers are thousands of feet tall. And so when you see them just 30 feet tall, you get a sense of yeah. just the imposing nature of it. I think with environmental documentaries and the Jane Goodall, I think I've seen Jane Goodall at the IMAX theater actually mm, in Seattle. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, when you're the bigger, the screen, you the more immersed you are, yeah. and more impactful it is. Yeah. So after chasing ice, did you consider yourself to be a documentary filmmaker or were you even defining what you did at that point? That's a really interesting question because I think for my, for my journey, I never set out to be a filmmaker. Like that was never my dream. Contrary to, so many of my friends who like, that's what they want to do. I want to make movies. I want to be a narrative filmmaker, doc filmmaker. Like for me, I wanted to, to be honest, like I just wanted to go on adventures. I wanted to travel the world and see amazing places. Yeah. Nat Geo was always my dream of being a Nat Geo photographer. That's what brought me to work with Jim Balog. And after having the story in front of me and the material to be able to turn it into a film, that was the beginning of my process of becoming a filmmaker. And learning how to be a filmmaker over the course of making Chasing Ice. Yeah. Um, when the opportunity came up to do Chasing Coral, Richard Vivers just emailed me out of the blue and said, what you did with Glaciers is awesome. Take a look at what's happening with coral reefs and they're mm. changing. And he sent me two photographs of a healthy reef and a dead reef and they were night and day different. And I'd never, I'd done a couple scuba dives, but I'd never really done uh, a lot of scuba diving. And I saw that and I was like, man, th if we can figure this story out, this is huge. 
And in that case, it really came from, oh, there's a story with a huge opportunity to change the world. And let's go figure out how to tell the story. And that's what gave birth to Chasing Coral. Yeah. With The Social Dilemma, the same thing. It was a friend of mine saying, hey, there's a huge problem happening with our technology. And I had no idea that this critique was even out there. And that set us down the path to make The Social Dilemma. And that all I, of your buddies from Stanford had created exactly, this problem. Exactly. All, all of my friends... <laughs> Friends that I was working with, there's a, a dear friend of mine, Jeff Seibert, who we both worked at Apple when we were on campus. We were technically it was called an Apple campus rep. Um, and we were paid evangelists to promote Apple products on campus. Yeah. And I, I don't know, we sold millions of dollars of Apple computers on campus. And it was years later where Jeff was good friends with Tristan, one of the main subjects in the film. Yep. And Jeff Seibert is in the film as well. And I heard Tristan starting to talk about the problems that he saw inside Google. And I went to Jeff and I was like, what's going on here? Is this, is there something here? I remember Jeff was working at Twitter at the time. He was an executive at Twitter. He might, he might've just left. I don't, I don't remember the exact time, but we met right by the Twitter office at this little wine bar, like on market street. And we sat down and we we're chatting and it felt so weird, like knowing that we're a couple doors away from Twitter and I'm asking him about like, is there something wrong with the business model? And he said, I didn't, you know, I was skeptical at first what Tristan was saying, but I think there's really something to this. Mm. And that was the summer of 2017. Mm. And it set me off on this, this path. And yeah. I, so I, I'm hesitant to call myself an activist, but I do think that is what motivates the work that I want to do. Right. The idea of making a rom-com feels not exactly in my DNA. <laughs> um, I certainly want a change of pace at some point soon. But um, for me, I think the thing that has drawn me to the projects that I've been working on are, there's a story here that nobody knows about that I think we can tell in a really powerful way. And I think that it could shake the world up in a really powerful way. Yeah. And I think that's one of the consistent things between all three of the films that we've done. I mean, from what I'm hearing and, and what I've studied before our interview is I would call you a documentary filmmaker only to the extent that you are a storyteller and you're trying to tell important mm -hmm. stories. Mm -hmm. And if it, if you need to use the doc documentary format to do that, yeah. then that's how you're doing it. Yeah. Um, but it, it sounds like, I mean, cause if you look at, where you were at Stanford, mm -hmm. you really had a lot of options there to mm -hmm. where to go vocationally or, or yeah. um, you know, with your career. And you could have gone the way of Google and Facebook very that's what, easily. Very easy. That's what my friends were doing. I, I think there was something in me that I knew I wouldn't be super in love with a desk job. Yeah. And as much as I loved and enjoyed computers. I wasn't a programmer at that point in time. I'd taken some like HTML classes and I could build websites. But when I was building, when I had that like web design company with some friends, it was actually Jeff and another friend. When we were doing that, I was more on the business side and they were on the coding side. And I could like give input on design, but I wasn't touching any of the code. Right. And so the idea of working at Google or Facebook at the time, I think it was fun and exciting, but I also felt like I wanted to travel more and do yeah. more adventures and not stay locked down. I remember though, this, Google hosted this thing. So Stanford's biggest rival is Cal. And they hosted this like Olympics sorts of, I don't know, I forgot what they call it. It was like a big competition between Stanford and Cal that they hosted at Google's campus. And they invite all these people in and you're on these teams and you're competing against your arch rival and just having so much fun doing these games and puzzles and challenges 
on Google's campus and seeing like the amazingness of their campus and seeing all the, the fun. It just projected so much fun mm -hmm. to be there at that company. So uh, yeah, a lot of friends fell in love with it. And I, I certainly, I remember having the Google shirts back then and just <laughs> wearing them with pride. Yeah. yeah. Well, it says a lot about your values though, if you're able to walk away from that, because you could have so easily been part of the startup culture yeah. and had, you know, some unicorn company turn it, you're, yeah. you're a billionaire overnight, yeah. but here you are telling these really important stories yeah. going back to chasing coral. When I watched that documentary, um, I have to say it was one of the most sobering experiences, uh, that, that I've had watching a yeah. movie, just profound sadness. Yeah. And, but at the same time, you know, it, it, there's still hope, Yeah, you know, there's still hope there. Yeah. And I think it's important to have that hope. Yeah. And, and I, and I was talking to Tanner, our photographer here about, cause we saw the social dilemma mm -hmm. at a screening a couple of days ago. And, and at least even though it's, it's scary yeah, what's happening with Google and Facebook and in, in our attention spans and the screen time and all of that, there's still hope. Yes. You know, and, and I think that's probably an there important. Is, yeah. Did you get that from Jane Goodall in terms of? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, she leaves, you leave one of her talks and you just feel empowered. Like I can change the world. I need to change the world. If it's not me, then who else is going to do it? Like you, you feel this individual responsibility of we have to take action. And Jane, she wrote a book called reasons for hope. She always closes her talks with her reasons for hope. She inspires so many people um, with that message. And I think if we don't have hope, then there's no point. Then, I mean, might as well just, you know, give up now and life would be a lot easier not having to make these really challenging projects and, you know, go pick up some consulting job and just live the rest of my life happily, mm -hmm. take my current savings and just move to Thailand and retire now. <laughs> right? Um, I, I don't know. I think they're definitely depressing times when working on these projects, both with the climate crisis and with our current tech crisis, that it feels overwhelming and impossible. But I've, I just believe in humanity and I believe in the power for us to do the right thing and for us to shift the tide of, of where things are going right now. Mm. I think I have to believe. Yeah. yeah. Now with the social dilemma, I noticed a, a different approach to your, your storytelling yeah. there. Uh, you, you have actors in, you know, dramatic, dramatically portrayed, I don't know how to phrase yeah. it, but you have actors yeah. and you have scenes mm -hmm. that are, I think it totally works in the film, uh, because it's true. Yeah. It, we, we see when we're watching right. those scenes, right. uh, we see ourselves yeah. in the, but what, what made you make that choice to have actors in your documentary? Yeah, Totally. Once again, it goes back to, as you were saying, like, I don't look at myself as a documentarian as opposed to a storyteller. And I think there are some stories that are better as nonfiction stories and other stories that are better as fictional stories. In this case, what we were learning from the Tech Insiders was a very true nonfiction story that um, is grounded by these employees from Google, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Pinterest, telling us what they built and the problems with what they built. Yeah. And in the process of learning all of that from them, in the process of being educated on what exactly are these companies selling? How does Google and Facebook, how are they, you know, some of the richest comp companies in the history of money when they give out a free product? Mm -hmm. Like there's a disconnect there that we've all sort of just accepted. And we use the word advertising and people think, oh, yeah, they just, they sell ads. And it's just like a band-aid answer for what exactly is actually going on. And I think this process 
for me gave real insight into what does that word advertising really mean? What is actually happening? How are they making so much money? Yeah. Um, there's a stat that I didn't squeeze. I couldn't fit into the film somehow. I keep thinking about it, but Google runs 40,000 searches every second. Hmm. Right. So 40,000 people around the world are searching Google every second. <laughs> okay. Huge number. Yeah. Every time you do a search, an ad comes up. So Google is running 40,000 auctions every second. Uh-huh. They are auctioning us as individuals. Human- they are auctioning us off. And we're talking about cents on an impression, right? We're talking about tiny, tiny little amounts of money mm-hmm. for every single impression that they make. But there is this futures market on humanity that there is a little digital version of us that lives on these computer servers that are worth more or less than other people that people are willing to pay for in different ways, all to try to change our behavior and modify our behavior Mm -hmm. to try to get us to do something. And it can seem innocent if they're trying to just get us to buy a pair of sneakers, but it's those same tools that allow somebody to try to shift an election. And when you have that at scale, when you have 2.7 billion people plugged into a machine that at its core is designed to manipulate, what does that do to our entire society? Mm. And I think, I'm, I'm 35 years old right now. I grew up in an era. I remember a typewriter in my house when I was a kid. I remember setting up the very first, you know, IBM 286 computers for my parents when I was a kid. Yeah. And so my trajectory of technology was still in an era where I went through high school without a cell phone. Just at the very end of high school, I got my first cell phone that could just make phone calls, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Flip phone. Yeah. <laughs> um, the the big Nokia brick. That was oh, the, okay. That the was brick. the one. But... Um, the shift that we felt in our culture and our society over the last decade, I'm not old enough to really reflect on how it compares to the entire century that preceded us, but the polarization has been so rampant over the last few years that it's our subject saying that this is coming as the as a cause of the technology that we've built. Right. We have built technology that makes more money the more divisive it is. And if we want the tech to make more money, we can just ramp up the divisiveness. That's not an intentional thing. That's like an accidental byproduct of how yeah. the technology works. And so what we're feeling in our society where everybody feel I just, this anxiety that we're feeling as a culture, in my mind, that's not some accidental thing. That is, that is the byproduct of how we have programmed humanity mm-hmm. through this technology. Yeah. Silicon Valley isn't programming software. They're programming society. Yeah, that's a profound statement. And your film really portrays that effectively. Yeah. Um, and, and without, you know, the thing I like about your oh, documentary. I, I didn't answer your actual question around the narrative stuff. Oh, okay. Yeah. The acting. The, we never, the, we, um, yeah. the reason why we tried to bring actors into the film is that we were learning all of the stuff that was really hard to explain or to conceptualize. And you can listen to, you know, Tristan or Aza or a bunch of our subjects try to explain how the stuff works. And, as they were explaining it, I just kept having this image, the way they were describing this little, I don't want to reveal too much as, as a spoiler. So I don't I actually want to kind of save some of that, but there's a, there's a, what we tried to do was craft an entire narrative based around a family and based on the other side of your screen. Right. And what's going on on the other side of your screen. This is not a critique of the phone. This is not a critique of technology as a whole. The iPhone is an amazing, powerful tool. I love it. I will have a smartphone for a very, very long time. But there are things on your phone that aren't a tool for you. Mm-hmm. There are things on your phone that have their own goals and their own intentions and their own object- objectives. And they're trying to use you 
and they use your psychology against you to get you to do certain things. Once again, that might sound really, really innocent if it's just trying to get you to buy a pair of sneakers. But what that does to truth, what it does to news, what it does to fact or fiction is what is morphing our understanding of the world at scale. Yeah. And and that's why I think this documentary is so important because it, it sort of complements. I mean, there's there's other documentaries that are touching on these important issues like, is it called The Great Hack? The Great, the hack, great yeah. hack. I watched that recently. Yep. That came and, out last year. And you start to see just how dark and I, I hate to use the word evil, but you know, these, these technologies can really send us off the rails as a culture. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think if we approach it, I think you had a nice balance of statistics, mm-hmm. which normally bore the shit out of people. Yeah. But they're so important because you're talking about teen suicide rates, which are directly related to social media and and these smartphone technologies and and apps. Um, But you also have a nice way to take the abstract because you have the tech people saying, this is what I built. This is why it's bad. That's sort of an abstract concept unless you see the dramatization of it, which you, and then you look at that dramatization and you're like, that's me. Mm-hmm. That's my family, right? You know, and I, that's what was so effective about yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, so well done on Great. that. Well, thank you. What's yeah. next for uh, the social dilemma? Um, well, we are here at Sundance selling the film. We've got our fingers crossed. Um, that's why I'm also trying to, you know, stay. Uh, well, anyway, we we've got our fingers crossed. Right. Yep. And um, hopefully, we'll have some news to be able to share relatively soon. Yeah. Yeah. And and so that would mean ideally that we'd be able to see the social dilemma on the on the big screen in theaters this year, um, or at least I mean, streaming. Our subjects are extremely eager to get the story out into the world. Um, our subjects are so concerned about the state of democracy. Um, we all believe that the film can be a massive, massive tool, particularly this year in twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. Um, but the solutions are really challenging as well. Um, how do we best solve this? Um, as quickly as we can. I don't think anybody has the perfect silver bullet answer to it. It's a problem that's similar to climate change in that there's an entire system at play where there's an incentive, there's a product that we have been extracting that is bad for civilization. Yeah. In the case of the fossil fuel industry, fossil fuels provide a great value to humanity until we learn that there, there were really dire consequences to it. And in the same way, these technology platforms that we have built now they had this really, really amazing golden birth. Mm-hmm. Um, but now we're seeing the consequences that they're having on society at large. And how do we get off of this toxic business model? Right. So all the urgency for us to try to get out there as quickly as we can and in as big of a way as we can. And that's why I think the name of the film is, is apt because uh, dilemma, if you look up the definition of dilemma, I think it's something like two or more choices, none of which are ideal. Yes. So it's like you, you have some really bad options. Right. With the with the social media stuff, by getting rid of Google searches and mm-hmm. you know Facebook accounts, you're really it's a trade off. You're giving yeah. up some good things. Yeah, but absolutely. You know, it's gonna be a net positive if you do give yeah. it up. Yeah. yeah. I think that's yeah, I appreciate the recognition of the title there. Um it's something that we have struggled with for quite a while in terms of how do we best name this film. Also in part because we're not we're not wanting to critique all technology. Yeah. Um, it really, the ones that we're looking at the most are the free products that have an advertising based business model, which encompasses all of the social media platforms and also encompasses Google and YouTube. Um, and those are the products that are distorting our sense of the world. They're distorting news and information and, and truth. They're distorting individuals' perceptions of themselves. You can almost look at every single 
platform and see what the biggest consequence is. Like Instagram is having a huge effect on mental health and teen depression, mm-hmm. right? YouTube is having this huge effect on radicalization. Facebook is having a huge effect on fake news that's going rampant, yeah. right? So each of these platforms have sort of their Achilles heel um, of what consequence that they've they've unleashed onto society. Yeah, and they all probably deserve their own documentary, each of those yeah. categories. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, scary stuff. So speaking of social media, where can, <laughs> where yeah. can uh, listeners find you online well, and the best follow thing, your work? The best thing right now is our website, thesocialdilemma.com, okay. um, where we are wanting to build this website out to be a real resource and tool for... Uh, for the public. So this has been a huge journey for us in learning about this issue. Um, We're going to be sharing lots of articles, um, TED Talks, videos, books, places to point people to learn more about what's going on with our technology. So that's like the first and foremost, we want to build that resource. Um, We're also going to be building into it lots of suggestions for what people can do. And Mm. this is not an easy problem to solve. And it will require meaningful government involvement in this from both sides of the aisle. So we're trying to help people figure out how best to reach out to their representatives, how best to put pressure on the tech companies, how best to change their own relationship in their own lives with the technology. So it's going to be an ongoing, growing and evolving resource. Nice. And can you talk about any future projects that you're excited about? Um, I'm hoping to spend at least a month this year just sleeping and taking time <laughs> off. That's exciting. Yeah, no, exactly. That's a great project lined up for, uh, for me. We have, I don't know, we've got way too many ideas and way too many thoughts on our team. The company that I founded is called Exposure Labs, and we've got a a meaningful team, over a dozen people, dedicated just to using film for change. So we're continuing with our environmental impact work, and now we're branching out into this tech impact work to address the technology issue that we're discussing now. And they're really, in some ways, two sides of the same coin. The filter bubble that exists around climate change is what got us into the climate change activism and, and outreach. And that's coming as a result of the technology that we, we've explored in this, in this film. So we're spending a huge amount of time and effort wanting to build those campaigns out for the most change that we can do. And then just constantly looking for great stories to tell. Nice. Um, we're thinking about series. We're thinking about narrative films. We're thinking about shorts. All of these different ways to tell different stories. Oh, actually, literally all three of those are the top three in my mind right now. Yeah, <laughs> oh, that's that's yeah. fun. Well, Jeff Rolowski, thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. Hey, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Dream Path Podcast. If so, I have a favor to ask: Can you go to your favorite podcast service and give me a rating and review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. I appreciate your time, and as always, go find your dream path.